I always see an opportunity to learn from something regardless of the outcome. It's really good to reflect on mistakes because then you can use that and it will help you in the future. Writing is one of the few things that you can do a hundred times over and just get better at it. Um, and that's what I did. I just kept writing and just kept doing it. And you kind of find your style and your grammar and how you structure stuff. Pop came about as a community driven thing too, but WhatsApp he have endorsed it as an official format in their eyes. So we had this call. He was like, I want to sort out like a, a committee, a council, a panel of Format experts, people with good insight, people who have experiences, and we can look at curating the format. You're listening to Emma Partlow on Humans of Magic. Hello, and welcome to Humans of Magic, the show that gets up deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. As always, I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 89 with Emma Partlow. Emma is a freelance tabletop writer, podcaster, and member of the Popper Format Panel. She's an excellent writer, and we're going to talk about some of her favorite articles, including the seminal work on how to get started as a content creator, and a host of other deep and personal and fun topics. Emma's got a lot of range. She doesn't just write about magic, and she didn't grow up playing magic. She grew up playing a lot of different games. We go all over the place. We explore some of her hobbies, her love for The Simpsons, and everything you ever wanted to know about Emma will be here for you. And of course, if you want to get an inside look into what goes on in the Popper Format panel and how Emma was selected to be part of this prestigious group, if you're a Popper player, you're looking to get into Popper, this will also be the episode for you. First things first, I want to acknowledge the excellent, excellent music that is being used for Humans of Magic every episode at the beginning, the end, throughout. The music is by Kupla, K-U-P-L-A. Kupla is one of those musicians whose work transcends different boundaries. He's a very talented person, also a magic player. So please give him a follow, Kupla Sound, K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. And you can find all of his works on all the places you can hear music. Humans of Magic on Twitter. Please give us a follow. Humans of Magic. One word. Humans of Magic on Twitter. Or visit our website, humansofmagic.com, to get all of the previous episodes. If you have a little bit of time, I would really appreciate you leaving a review subscription on whatever platform you would like. Whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast listening service we're everywhere so please tell your friend if you like it give us a follow spread the word last but not least humans of magic is now a regular series on starcitygames.com we are part of star city games's non-strategy strategy really happy to be part of the scg family again if you like what we do please tell a friend and hey, maybe even tell the folks over there at SCG that you like having Humans of Magic on SCG. And thank you most of all for listening, for making this happen. This is truly a labor of love project, and I'm really happy that in 2022, with a lot of things going on in the world, that maybe this is a nice distraction. Maybe it's nice just sitting down and listening to 
people talk about magic and how they got into magic and all that fun stuff. So without further ado, this is Humans of Magic with Emma Partlow. Emma, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me as well. Absolute delight. It's totally my pleasure. It's very rare that I talk to somebody all the way over in Great Britain. Although I guess <laughs> proximity-wise, I'm actually closer to you than most of my other guests who are in North America. So that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool, but kind of weird because geography is weird like that. But yeah, yeah, this is great. Yeah. So you have to forgive me if, if I guess it's hard for you to know if I'm sounding off, but I, maybe it's just like a self-conscious <laughs> thing because it's actually my evening and usually it's in my morning and you have the optimal time zone. But for me, I don't know. Hopefully I'll be able to not embarrass myself in this uh, in this conversation you don't have to worry about it i can work, i can embarrass more than most so you're, you're, you're good <laughs> yeah but uh how, how are you doing recently i mean there's a lot of exciting things going on i mean in general i mean i shouldn't say all good but i mean just in terms of your magic stuff like how how is everything going for you yeah good um admittedly a bit busy um, as I've said on Twitter recently, uh, busy, but the good kind of busy because I've kind of reeled stuff back a little bit. Um, so for those who don't know, I write for TCG Player full time. I'm a full time staff writer, which means I work five days a week, write about magic, plan content, plan SEO strategy, that kind of thing. So it's quite it's quite detailed stuff, quite heavy stuff. And sometimes on the on the side of that, I like to do freelance, so write for places like Polygon and Dicebreaker about, you know, stuff that isn't magic necessarily. So we're thinking of Warhammer, Dungeons and Dragons, board games, because I really enjoy those as well. And it, I always think it's good to have a little bit of contrast, especially when you're writing about magic five days a week. It can get a little boring as much as I enjoy magic. It can get really, really boring. It can get a bit stagnant at times. So having this option to write about, let's say, Warhammer 40,000 is just a good way to give that contrast to keep things interesting. Um, it just cycles my cycles in my brain quite nicely. Um, and then there was a point where I kind of just took on too much. Um, also, side context, this is like my first full year doing freelance, like going into writing as a career um, and having the financial support to do, to do so. Um, so I've been feeling a bit burnt out. Um, start of February, I was just like going to cut all ties with like the additional freelance stuff and just go back into TCG player, just focus on that a bit. And I've been feeling a lot better just since um, not having that pressure of constant deadlines because freelance writing feels a lot like you have homework a lot, but you get paid for the homework. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit weird, right? Um, but it just feels like you've got these constant assignments. And after a while, it's just like, yeah, I just kind of need a break, you know, it's, I don't want to end up hating the thing I actually really love doing, if that makes sense. And that, that line is really hard to balance at times. For sure. I mean, if you're freelancing, you just, there's no, there's no boundaries, right? It's just, this is it. if they give you work, you probably, I'm just thinking of some parallels maybe with other industries where let's imagine you're an actor who, and I, and I've never been an actor. This is just like from interviews, right? Like, they all started, even the famous ones, not famous. So when they get the work, even when they are rich and famous, which you are probably the equivalent of that in the magic content space, <laughs> then they just want to keep taking on the work because maybe one day there's not going to be work for some reason or other. And so while you can get it, you should 
go for it. I'm not sure if that factors into your thinking or mindset at all. It does a little bit. It's weird for me because I already have a full-time writing job. So realistically, I don't have to do this freelance stuff. I do this freelance stuff out of choice. It's not driven by money. Admittedly, the extra money is nice, but I don't need that to live. I'm quite comfortable on a TCG player payroll. I do this uh, as a passion project slash I enjoy writing. I enjoy writing about little plastic men or, you know, storytelling and Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, so forth. Um, but it's just cutting that line. And also when it comes to stuff like um, so magic, how magic content is structured over, say, mainstream outlet content is very, very different. Um, so you have places like Polygon, IGN, uh, Dicebreaker, they all often come to you for pitches. So you approach them for a, a story going, oh, hey, um, you know, I've got some money free. Do you want to write about something? Pitch me X, Y, Z. So you, you come up with a subject and then you kind of agree and then you agree rates and stuff. Um, a lot of these outlets also want to cover news. So like all the magic news, so stuff like Secret Lairs, previews, set releases, that sort of thing. And often you just get an email going, hey, can you cover this in like two hours? Um, and if you say no, it's like a FOMO thing, right? Because you're losing out on work. So that goes down to someone else. Yeah. Which is very, very common in that industry. So it's thinking of that and then thinking, oh yeah, I could probably do this in two hours. You know, it's, what's two hours work, right? But then you're like, it's two hours work. I kind of need to relax. You know? it, it adds so up. You always... It adds up and it always and it switch it, you always feel switched on. Given that I'm also in England and not in America, I'm five hours ahead on Eastern time. So a lot of these messages come through like late at night. So sometimes I'm working overnight and it just spirals and then I've got the TCG player stuff and you can see it snowballs, right? Yes. Um so it is it can be pretty tough, but I've managed to draw a line finally um since the first week of February and I feel a lot better so okay. I'm just focusing on that and then I'll pick it up again but I've realized I've not really had a break for like a year and given the pandemic and everything that's going on there's these external stresses that just come into the fold as well I think the self-awareness that you needed to change something is probably a huge part of it and I assume that when you go back to it or as you're starting to gradually go back into it you'll look at it differently this time or I don't know. I yeah, don't want to put words in your mouth. Right. So no, 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 no. Um, I, for context, I'm quite a self-aware person. I go by intuition a lot. If, if there's a gut feeling, there's probably something to it because I wouldn't be feeling it otherwise. So I should acknowledge it in some way. Right. There's, it's not something I could just easily ignore. Um, yeah. Like I'll wean myself back into it, but it's just the fact of saying no is fine. And I don't think these like editor in chiefs are going to be like, oh no, we're not going to have Emma back because she said no on one news piece when we needed it done. Like it's, they go through rotations all the time, but it's understanding that industry because that industry is so much different to writing within the magic sphere. My mainstream uh, content is a lot different to that, these places. It's a different ballpark altogether. And that's what I love about your content is having had a look at some of the things you're doing outside MTG is that you really have a greater range. And my understanding of your background is that you didn't play magic for 20 years. I'm not saying that like one has to play magic for 20 years, but you're just a gamer, right? So can you tell me a yeah. bit about just starting from way back? Like maybe what are some of your 
formative gaming experiences? I guess we can have this as the icebreaker question, basically. Yeah, yeah, this works. This works. Um, so yeah, I've been a gamer since I was born, basically. So I have two older brothers who are seven and nine years older than me, who are also big gamers. So when you're a kid, you obviously take the most influence from those that you spend the most time with. I spent a lot of time with my brothers growing up. Um, so as long as I can remember, they were playing like Street Fighter 2 Turbo on the Sega Mega Drive. There was like Streets of Race 2 as well. There was loads of Mario. Like there was always something on. Games were a very big part of our childhood. And from a family background, we were quite fortunate to have these things quite often. Like my dad worked a pretty comfortable job as an accountant. And my mom, my mom was a, um, just like stayed at home to look after us. Um, but he earned enough that we could have these things. We didn't have like hand-me-downs or, you know, we had a Nintendo and a Sega console. We didn't have to choose. We were fortunate to have both. And that extended to like board games as well. Um, so one of my fondest memories is the conversation we had briefly about HeroQuest. Um, that was one of the tabletop games that I first got into when I was like four or five years old. Um, so me and my brothers would play that. And then my mum would be the games master, you know, behind the big screen, being the big eagle wizard that you had to be in the dungeon. Um, and yeah, it's just been a part of my like childhood. And magic just was going to happen at some point. Like, it's, <laughs> if you're involved like, in it's fantasy just another, it's just gaming, another tip you're going right? to touch it at some point, right? But not at the beginning. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. Like, I didn't know of magic until like eight, nine years ago. And I've been into it since 2014. So it's just like yeah like <laughs> so give me a, give me just, a bit more background like how where exactly did you grow up with your family together and so i am from nottingham which is the east midlands admittedly england's quite small and um, so i'm in from like the middle what they call the midlands which is the middle part of the country there is a north and a south and the midlands does exist just just to put that out there and um, so i'm from nottingham um nottingham is known it's quite deep in history and folklore so you may be familiar with Nottingham with like Robin Hood and like um, Sherwood Forest. Um, I'm from a small town called Mansfield, which is about 10 miles away from Sherwood Forest. So having that historical slash folklore sort of association was, was quite important to me. Um, so I, I remember as a kid, we used to go to like what they now call like Renaissance fairs. So you would go and see people dressed up as Robin Hood, dressed up as Sheriff. No. What did they call it back then? Like, is it just fairs or just They were just called fairs, reenactments, fairs. They weren't as popularized com compared to now. Um, but yeah, you would go to like, go on walks, go around tours, see the major oak, which is the oldest oak tree in England, which is where Robin Hood and the Merry Men just chilled out and lived. You also saw jousting, which is when two knights fight on horses and fight each other, knights' tails kind of thing yeah um you'd throw vegetables at sheriff of nottingham you would drink some juice with fire tuck you know because you're a kid so you can obviously drink alcohol mm. um so as a kid just being involved in like history and stuff was such an important thing for me and it's another reason why i appreciate history so much as well when i turned about four or five we moved down to the southeast of england so i now live in suffolk which is in the east of england if you're familiar with the map of england you see the curve in the east and the back. That's where I'm from. That's where I currently live. And we moved away um, for my dad's work. He, he got a new job in, in Suffolk. So we moved down there and I've been here ever since. Excellent. And I have to admit my ignorance about 
England because I've only been to London and it was I think it was uh it's one of the PTs I think for magic yeah but I'm sure that many of our listeners are have a much better geographic understanding than I do to be so. fair I am about an hour away from London so because we're oh, okay. small so <laughs> okay and this is a very tangential question but was the whole Robin Hood and the Merry Men thing was it actually grounded in historic reality or was it just a lot of embellishment a lot of it is folklore mostly um but around Nottingham way they kind of see it as history because they're quite proud of it so they ah, really okay. wanted to be involved in the culture and stuff and when you go around Nottingham you just see stuff everywhere like you see statues of Robin Hood um, there is a town called Newark which was once a castle um, it was a town in castle walls so when you walk down the street you just see like random walls of castle just ingrained into like shops and stuff so like it's really cool just to see how even though these things have been deteriorated due to like war and time that, mm -hmm. you know, it's got a new lease of life for like a bakery or something like it's really endearing in a way, at least I find it anyway. Yeah. So going back to you and your brothers, it sounds like you guys were all quite competitive then, right? Or video games yes. was an outlet <laughs> for you to, did, they, did yeah. they go easy on you because you're the youngest one or it was just like no holds barred kind of thing? Nope. Oh, no holds barred. Um, and I kind of liked it that way because it gave me a challenge. And I think it's a lot of it. I contribute that to why I'm so competitive and driven as an extension of that. So as I said, I'm the youngest of, of three. A lot of the time we used to settle our differences like by playing video games to see who was right. Um, so a lot of Street Fighter 2 Turbo was the was the main one, um, was the one that we played a lot just to you know, settle differences. Um, I was the middle child. I came second every time, which was a bit annoying. Um, I could beat one of them fine, but not so much the other one. And when I did beat them like once, obviously you didn't hear the end of it. You know, I had to had to brag about it. Sure, yeah, it was an event. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was competitive, but in a good way, not in a get salty, you know, hold grudges that sort of thing. It was a playful competitiveness. Like it was a competitive. It was. A, it was a competitiveness to be better rather than be better in a bad way, if that makes sense. You don't want to be a bad winner. It was like in a, always in a good way. Yeah, it was. A, it's the good. It's the good competitive mindset, right? Because you're. Yeah. It's yeah. I. It, it's interesting that you mentioned this because I. I feel like so. I have one younger brother. I have one sibling, and we used to play Hero Quest. We used to play video games and we were very competitive and we were literally fighting each other as well because that's just what you do when you're younger yeah. and it was never like i feel like now it's maybe it's because we're playing games with strangers like there's more saltiness or maybe just something about us into adulthood just isn't is like left over from behind where you kind of the salt becomes a part of it. I, I, I'm just trying, I'm not exactly sure, but it, I always remember when it was me and my brother, we were always just purely competitive and it wasn't really, like we we're really trying to beat the other person. And it was never just yeah. like, if you lose, there's no excuses. Like you just try to, <laughs> you just try to get yeah, better, you know? It. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think a huge part of that is how, especially video gaming is mostly online now. Back when we were younger, a lot of it was just quote unquote like couch co-op, co quote unquote, you know, you played with the person next to you in front of a screen. You had that back and forth. You had that sort of dynamic because you had someone next to you. It's really hard to do that when you're playing against someone across the world online for a screen. You don't really get that same sort of dynamic, right? 
So I think it, it's just a time and a place thing. And maybe it's a generational thing. Um, but I appreciate it. I love my childhood. I thought it was great fun. Also, we used to like watch wrestling till the sh- you know, early hours in the morning, do wrestling moves on each other and stuff as well. Like, <laughs> I've had a very sort of, I hate using the term, but I can't think of a better way to put like a tomboy sort of um, upbringing because I've been around, like I grew up with my brothers. So yep. I'm into, I used to be into wrestling. I got was really into Star Wars, really into Ninja Turtles and Transformers and all that stuff, which as a girl back in the 90s, which was quite uncommon because obviously it was a lot different back then. That's such, it's just a coincidence because I'm not saying, I'm not putting the gender thing into the, the the discussion, but it's just like, I was really into wrestling with my brother. I was really into Ninja Turtles. <laughs> I think one of the yep. first action figures I asked my parents to buy me was one of the Ninja Turtles for Christmas. And uh, yeah. uh, the NES was a big land, like landmark in the 90s. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> I, I guess it's what they, it's like what they say, it used to be more of a monoculture, right? Like there was just, le- there were just less things to be into. Now you could be into something that nobody has any idea what it is, but it has, you know, like 20 million people that are into it, that sort of thing. Like yeah, magic, exactly. kind of, um, yeah. This is it. And best thing about it you can just ask someone about it and then you find out about it just by being curious and then that gets you into it as well and that's just great like having that conversation even if you're not even into magic or intend to get into magic or don't even understand magic you can just have this conversation and find out about it and just find out what makes people really excited and what makes people really happy and I get the whole Ninja Turtles as a toy thing because I was really happy when I got a um, transformer of Soundwave one Christmas and it was oh. like the best Christmas ever yes <laughs> it's my favorite transformer. <laughs> <laughs> very cool so from gaming at a young age like what where did you go after that like did you go like where did you go for your studies like uh, you know post-secondary like tell me a little bit about your your journey basically all, all the way through the young adulthood? In terms of education, um, I was like an average student. Um, I did, I got average grades. Like I could have applied myself um, if I wanted to, but I was distracted. From just not games. that interested? Um, yeah, okay. I think it was that. And I think it was just the fact that the things I was learning didn't interest me. So why should I learn it? Yeah. Um, and like a good example is I, I've mentioned history before. I'm really into history. I find it really fascinating. I'm from a place that's enriched in it. So it was obvious I was getting into it. Also, my mum was really into history. She studied a lot of um, military history as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, so we like when I was at school, we used to just have a lot of healthy conversations and debates about military history and stuff like that. So that was ingrained into me quite early on. So I really enjoyed history in an educational standpoint, it wasn't as great because you just learned the same stuff over and over. Like the, it, And once you are taught the same thing over and over again, it gets really boring. You lose your ability to engage because you've probably heard it before. So a lot of the time I would just spend time just studying stuff on my own, like the stuff I wanted to learn. Um, so I was like studying, but not to the curriculum in the, you know, what I had to learn for tests. I just didn't find it that interesting. Um, so in secondary school, I was like an average student. I got into uni, got into college, no problem. Uh, for a degree, I did graphic design. So I did a lot of, um, so 
I was a major in graphic design with a minor in illustration, which I thought was quite fun. Um, completely tangent of the history stuff, which is quite funny. Um, and I always kind of thought, I don't regret getting my degree or going to university because I'm a big fan of seeing university as a skill thing rather than a career trajectory thing. Like I go to uni to study graphic design to be a graphic designer, not because cool, I can learn these sort of skills like creative skills and eye for detail and social skills, which often, you know, is good for university. Um, so after uni, I did a bit of graphic design. I worked for a tech company and did like web design, UI design, that sort of thing. I mean, I was okay at it. I was fine, but it didn't really excite me. Um, and then that's when the writing started coming at one point as well. So I was just like, oh, you know, magic's pretty cool. Start writing about that. And here I am, I guess. <laughs> for some reason, I just guessed that incorrectly, obviously, that you studied writing or literature or something yep. to that effect. But you did you always enjoy the process of writing I enjoyed, before writing? I enjoyed English and I enjoyed history. And history obviously has a lot of writing. I'm used to writing like essays and stuff like that. I used to always get um, praise for how, how to structure stuff, you know, the, you know, flow, that kind of thing. But I never saw it as, hey, I should be a writer at some point. It didn't really twig in my head. It, I just guess I just had a knack for it um and I didn't really realize that until I actually paid attention and started writing about something I actually legitimately cared about which is quite weird to think about you know um but no with history it's very text-based there's a lot of writing there's a lot of discussion there's a lot of listening so maybe that plays into it a little bit I don't know I think that you're a very good writer just from all the works that I've seen but I think all great writers or good writers have some sort of inspiration or things to draw from so for you what was the the source like were there certain things you mentioned history but I mean going more specifically are you into certain authors or certain things that inspire you? Uh, I would say my favorite author is Terry Pratchett who did the Discworld series so he's a, a UK writer who unfortunately passed away not too long ago. Um, I really enjoy that sort of whimsical, enlightening sort of writing, that really imaginative sort of writing. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien's another good example. He, he was also quite good. The Hobbit being one of my favourite books ever as well. Um, so I really enjoy that sort of whimsical, silly, nonsense, lighthearted, also like compassionately fun like it doesn't seem too dark and too heavy and too sad. Admittedly, Lord of the Rings can get a little bit that way, but in particular, Terry Pratchett, he had a really just good outlook on life and it was always quite positive. And that is always something I kind of try to be because kindness, kindness is infectious, right? So if you're yeah. a bit kind, hopefully other people can be that way too. Um, it's not like I read Terry Pratchett as a kid going, I really want to be a writer. It's just a really good influence. And I think mindset plays a lot into it as well. So Yeah, it's just, you just get exposed to that thing. And is it something specifically with the fantasy genre or just like you like these books and they happen to be fantasy uh, themed? I tend to lean on fantasy because uh, going back to like Dungeons and Dragons and Hero Quest, that was instilled into me quite young. I've, I enjoy high fantasy stuff. Um, and that's what drew me to magic as well, because a lot of that is essentially high fantasy, but in cardboard form, right? Um, also, what, another reason why I enjoy Dungeons and Dragons, because it's also high fantasy. 
like I enjoy some like non high fantasy stuff but it's just something I always gravitate towards do just because of my upbringing and it's just the sort of world that I'm very common and like associate with and therefore I enjoy it more it's just so remarkable about Tolkien is just that the world building in it when I read first read it it didn't or at least the Lord of the Rings of course we all read the Hobbit first but Lord of the Rings it was just like he invented the language he invented the history of it and so there's this overlap between like I remember when I was younger it's just like it didn't I didn't even think it was not real as naive as it was like it was just like it was very fleshed out so I don't know if you saw that sort of like interplay between the historical or the fake historical and the the narrative yeah I think one thing I love about Tolkien's writing it kind of reminds me of your granddad reading you a bedtime story it's got that sort of structure it's very it's very slow but it's very sort of um it builds up and it's very very sort of easy to process it's very very sort of you can imagine yourself around a fire and your granddad's like telling you the story about hobbits that are going to Mordor to throw a ring into you know the pits to stop Sauron it's just got that sort of homely sort of warm vibe which is something I draw to and Terry Pratchett's also quite good at that um I think that's what it is for me. And um, also, yeah, the, the Hobbit is like my favorite book ever. Um, purely because my mom used to read it to me as a bedtime story. As a oh, kid. well, um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. so that's, that's another big part of it. So one of my favorite parts of the day was bedtime. And because I knew we would, she would read a couple of pages from The Hobbit. And she didn't just read it either. She actually acted some of it out. So when a dragon, when smell came about, she made dragon noises. She made it very interactive. For someone as a kid, that was really good because it's not the easiest thing for a kid to understand because it's there's, there's a lot of words. Uh, but she made it really engaging storytelling as if she was like a DM from Dungeons and Dragons. She would make it, you know, very, very engaging. And another thing that I loved that what she did, she used to quiz me about it the day after to make sure I was paying attention. So oh, she would for be the like, retention oh, you know, or the memory of it. Yeah, yeah for the retention. Um, so she would be like, oh, you know, what's the name of the, the Hobbit of the main story? That sort of thing. And I'd be like, oh, it's, yeah, it's Bill Bear Baggins and whatever. Just to make sure I was paying attention, even though it was a bedtime story. So like it may, like as a kid, that might seem quite challenging, but I really enjoyed that because it was kind of like learning that was fun, you know? It was really and good. That's probably why you still remember most of the details about the the story, yeah. I, I would bet, right? Yeah. That too. And given like my graphic design degree, I have a really good eye for detail as well. I pick up on the little things. So just retaining like the most perhaps insignificant things, I just remember. And it comes up a lot with like The Simpsons. When I watch Simpsons, I pick up like slight nuances that just no one picks up because it's just I have a trained eye for it. I know you're a big fan of the systems. How did you get exposed to, to that? Was it just on the tube or on the telly or what? It was on the TV. So in the UK, um, you, we have this thing called Sky, Sky TV, which is our version of cable. Mm -hmm. And when the Simpsons first started, it was on cable. And we were fortunate to have cable growing up and going back to like we had a pretty well off childhood. Um, and yeah, it was just on the TV. I remember watching like season, I think it's like season two or season three of The Simpsons we, I first got into. And I thought, this is great. My brothers were really into it as well. So therefore I just got into it. And then we would just watch it every six o'clock on a Saturday without a beat, just as a family, just watch it all together. And then the rest is history. 
I have two questions for you about the Simpsons. So sure. number one, what is, who's your favorite Simpsons character and why? So my favorite character is Ralph Wiggin, who is Chief Wiggin's son. Um, not only is Ralph, like Ralph seemed to be a bit dense and a bit, you know, a bit dumb. Let's be honest. He doesn't come across as <laughs> yeah. an intelligent guy. Let's, let's yeah. be honest. Um, but my favorite thing about Ralph is just how genuine he is about everything. It's very, very sort of unabashed. What you see is what you get with Ralph. And he's just trying his best. He's got the, the best intentions in the world. He just doesn't know how to communicate it because he's not, he doesn't have those social skills, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's something I always try to be is very unabashed in the things I enjoy, the things I talk about, because we should all be allowed to be comfortable in, mm-hmm. you know, the things we like about. We should, we should live in a world where we're not judged or pitied or anything like that, just for liking something and something that brings you joy. And Ralph just, just doesn't care. He's just himself. And I, I respect that. Just it's has a spirit. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's very genuine, which is good. Yeah. My other question was going to be, what's your favorite? Maybe it's hard to have a favorite, but what's your favorite Simpsons episode? So my favorite Simpsons episode is so it's season seven, episode seven. It's called King. You're a real Hanger. fan because you know what season it is. Like, I, I would just remember <laughs> oh, yeah, some I, episodes. I, I have no I idea what season it is. You probably have rewatched it more than once or twice, yeah. right? Okay. Um. So it's King Size Homer and the episode itself is not that exciting, but like if you were to look at a top 10 on like a, a website that rattled down the top 10 Simpsons episode, this would not be in here. Um, it is about an episode where it's the episode, does, the, the context of the episode doesn't sound great, but it's when Homer just wants to work from home. He doesn't want to work in an office anymore. So he puts on loads of weight and it's the how oh, he does it. I remember funny. this, the obesity. Yeah, and he wears yeah. the Mimi. Um, and it's just this story about him putting on loads of weight so he can work at home and be lazy. Um, and it, I don't know why I enjoy the episode so much. It's just really quotable, especially when Homer's at the computer and he orders a tab thinking it's a coffee, but it's not a coffee. It's a right. tab on a keyboard. Right. And it's just, it's just something really endearing about it. I just can't, it's just, every it's, time it's I the quintessential it, Homer Simpson episode, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And I think, the older I get, the more I associate with Homer as well, just in, <laughs> in general, how he thinks, how uh-huh. he feels, how he gets excited over it, like a trampoline, just these little pockets of just excitement. It's just really, really relatable. The older, right. the, at least the older I get anyway. I also never thought about this. Maybe it just came into my mind just now as you talked about this episode and it came back into my memory that I didn't know I had. But I love how the episode also plays with this sort of convention because simpsons is a sitcom right so at the end of every episode things are supposed to just revert back to the way it was there's really no stakes as it were like nobody dies or at least i don't remember <laughs> maybe maybe someone does uh, i don't know there is one character it's like one secondary character dies i think it's like season 11 when ned flanders's wife Maud dies oh um, that's right yeah I think it was like season 10 or season 11 and um, when she dies and i remember when that happened at the time everyone made like a huge deal out of it yeah. Um, also, I remember the Who Shot Mr. Burns when that was happening. As oh, well. yes, of like, course. Of course. Because it's that, all was coming the, back. that was the season. The first part was the season finale. And then the second part the was the start of the next season. And everyone yeah. was just like, Who Shot Mr. Burns? And obviously, like the internet wasn't, was like around, but it wasn't as, it wasn't around, around. as it is yeah. now. 
Yeah. So it's just like people were taking bets on like who shot Mr. Burns and stuff like that. It was crazy. And no one had Maggie. Like she was like a one to hundred to be. Right. Yeah, right. That he, just, he took a bet on that. Like, come on. <laughs> that just blew my mind. And I, I guess there's always certain offshoots. I mean, okay, clearly you have proven me wrong. So, but I remember like <laughs> there tended to be not that much of you know, like something actually happens and stays that way at the end of a particular episode because I think the Halloween ones are a little bit of an exception because they're just meant to be sort of mm. like Twilight Zone, like a parallel thing, right? Yeah. But I just remember like this, the Homer Simpson one, the obesity one, it was just like, is he going to just lose all the weight and like just like <laughs> yeah. go back to the way things were? I guess he did, uh, obviously. But yeah. I thought it was really clever that it played with those sort of conventions, at least in my mind, it's just like, I, I don't know. There's something yeah. something genius about that for me yeah it's clever and because it, it makes the writing easy if you just segregate it per episode right unless it's like a two-part or a three-part or whatever one thing i do love is that they do reference older episodes like have like slight easter eggs that you yeah. see once in a while yeah. like in king size homer there's a reference from a previous episode where homer ate everything in the flying in the frying dutchman which is the fish restaurant and there's a there's a little segue to that um and it's just funny just to pick up on these little tidbits you know as a details person i feel like i just need to watch the <laughs> simpsons again like i've missed out on all these details seasons one to ten obviously we don't go don't go beyond don't 10, go but... they jumped a shark after a 10 is that what happened or yeah so um when Maud died which i think it's like it's either start of season 11 or the late season 10 i can't remember but when she died yeah. It felt like the dynamic shift in The Simpsons because The Simpsons is not The Simpsons without the Flanders as a as a as a counterweight. Mm-hmm. And since Maud passed away, the Flanders weren't as important nor as complete. So that deteriorated the quality of The Simpsons at the same time. So I think for me, if if someone said to me, "Oh, what was the point where The Simpsons started to deteriorate?" I would put that as like a as a marker, just like when Maud died. You know, things just didn't turn a bit south. Um, I've been told like the latest seasons, like the last few seasons have been really, really good. But I'm a bit of a purist. I don't really want to watch the new stuff just because it might taint my appreciation of The Simpsons. It feels like a time capsule that I really have to look after. So I just keep to one, like seasons one to ten, cherry pick like the tree houses of horrors beyond that. And that's it. Because it's, it's such an important thing to me. So I don't really want to damage it. It's like a child. <laughs> I totally get you. I totally yeah. get you. I, I, without going too deep on that, there's other TV shows that I feel the same. It's like, it's, it's nice just to remember the, the good things. Cause that's what nostalgia yeah. is, right? Like yeah. you just pretend that the, the not so good things never existed. So I yeah. don't want to watch the latest Simpsons and complain and get really spiteful. And I'm like, this show is not meant to bring that out of me. It's meant to make me happy. It made me, meant to make me laugh. So, so I'm going to keep to the stuff that does that and just happy place. ignore it. Yeah, sorry, I'm going to go close my door. One sec. Yeah, no, I I have two cats and they're often very uh, unpredictable. So they'll they'll just open doors, push doors open on their own and try to jump on you and just what animals do. So So tell me about how you got acquainted with magic for the first time. Um, So it kind of just happened. Um, so for context, Ipswich is not Ipswich is not like a big town. It has a population of about 100k to 130k, um, and is, there is a countryside. So a lot of people live in the country as opposed to the town centre. Um, and with the town centre, there isn't really a lot going on. It's quite quiet. It's quite small. 
Um, so for the longest time, Ipswich didn't have a LGS. There was no real way to play Magic in Ipswich unless you went to like Colchester, which was like 10 miles away. And often you need to get a car to, to drive out there. Um, uh, and I came into Magic tail end of Magic 2015. Um, I caught the end of that, but my first proper set was Cards of Target, which came out in 2014. Um, and I remember a friend of mine who I used to play Warhammer with got into Magic. And they opened, they, they got a load of M15 boosters and they were just cracking them open. And I was like, you know, what's this? You know, this looks really exciting. I've heard of this Magic the Gathering game, but I had no real context on how to play it or anything like that. So uh, what, what they did was they just mashed, just made some decks up, just some like really easy decks to play. And then we played. Um, that was like my first like casual experience. Um, and then it was just like, oh, there's this new set called Cars of Target. I guess I should check it out to see whether this Magic the Gathering game is for me kind of thing. So I went to a pre-release at a store in Colchester. And, you know, not quite sure, you know, what really a pre-release is or, you know, what I'm meant to be doing. But I turned up anyway. And I remember my promo being the Brutal Horde Chief because all the packs, pre-release packs back then were seeded. So I picked the Mardu one. Because the Mardu one seemed like the easiest one because it was like aggressive matters. And because I'm new, I just wanted to touch stuff sideways. Um, so I remember Brutal Hall Chief being my primer, which is one that has like extra attack triggers or something like that. Apparently it was really good. Like someone new to the game, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just playing a few games and just really enjoying it. And this, the sticking point for me was when I had... Um, Pony Brat Brigade, which is like a, a six, seven mana, two, two goblin soldier. Um, but you can morph it for like five. And if you unmorph it, it makes three one one goblins when it's unmorphed. And for some reason, I just thought this was really, really cool. And I'm just like, man, this is great. I just want, this game just seems sweet. I just want to keep doing this all the time. And mm-hmm. I just had a blast. And mm-hmm. since then I've been into it and what, we're eight years strong now. And it's now my career. So funny how yeah. that works. It worked out. So <laughs> it, it sounds like from the beginning, like you were really attracted to the magic mechanics or because I mean, obviously you're not new to gaming. So I'm sure that, you know, the collectibles aspect nor the collectibles aspect. So it's really like certain things about magic itself, right? Yeah, it was so, I think in part it was the gathering bit as in I got to talk to people about games and get to be really social about you know, games. Get to ask questions like, oh, so how did you get into magic? You know, what's your favorite card? Just to pull, pull information, just to get an idea of people. And I guess I used to play a lot of chess as well when I was a kid with my mum. She was a really good chess player. So we would play chess on and off. And Magic the Gathering is essentially chess with like dragons, let's be honest. Like it's <laughs> it's a similar thing, right? Sure. Um, so I think that played a little bit of it. So it's just like, oh, this is like chess, but there's cardboard and there's dragons and there's goblins instead. And I think that just all came together. And I was like, yeah, this seems fun. Like, just give it a go. Um, I tend to have a mindset of what's the worst that can happen if I try something? Mm-hmm. I, I either don't like it, cool, I can forget about it, I can do something else. Mm-hmm. Or I end up really liking this thing and I do it and it makes me happy. Um, process of elimination is quite important because knowing what you dislike is just as, just as important as knowing what you do like because then you can focus on the stuff that you like. And I don't think people do that enough because they're worried that they might not like it. And I'm like, that's a good thing. Just 
you don't know until you try right you've got nothing to lose so just go for it which is what happened with writing and again here i am so i guess I it's think, working out yeah <laughs> no i think you're totally right i totally relate to that because i think people are also just afraid of looking silly there's certain things whether you call it fear of being silly or ego like you don't want to necessarily make yourself uncomfortable sometimes i think people don't like being wrong or admitting they've done something that's wrong or waste of time but it's all about outlook right is it a waste of time if you know you found out it's not right for you surely it's a good thing right because you're not spending more time on this thing that you may not like out of pride and you just like you cut your losses and you just move on right it's I don't know I think I I always see an opportunity to learn from something regardless of the outcome if I lose a game of magic I'm like cool there is something to learn from this have I misplayed did my opponent miss like misplay somewhere did did I play the right land you know that sort of thing you know it's really good to reflect on you know mistakes or something that didn't work out because then you can use that and it will help you in the future how did you because because I know you're writing your fair bit of strategic content as well. So how did you get hmm. more, uh, how do I put it? How did you level up gradually as a, as a magic player over time? Like, was it just this play group? Did you, did you start challenging yourself more in certain ways? Like how, what was the process of that like? So for background, I've never been like a hugely competitive player. I've always, the idea of the concept of it attracted me, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of doing P- like I've done the odd like PPTQ of top top eight like a couple of PPTQs that kind of thing and that's kind of as far as I went because the idea of the grind air quotes just really put me off like going away every weekend just to do this thing just I didn't really have the metal for it and that's fine um so a lot of my sort of success was at like game days at, like LGSs and stuff um and I just enjoyed playing magic I just wanted to play like the LGS in Ipswich which opened up around the time I got into Magic which was a huge coincidence as well because that helped cultivate my appreciation of the game and I just used to just play like daily like tournaments there and occasionally like the old GP as well because Europe and the UK is a bit different to America we we're not gifted with like SCGs and you know GPs in like every state for example um we would often get like two three GPs a year and that's it so a lot of the time, a lot of UK players would just make a huge effort because obviously this is the sort of high level play they can get access to unless they've qualified for like a pro tour or whatever and, you know, their flights are paid for, so and so forth. Yeah. Um, like, I just enjoy playing Magic, you know, and the, the competitiveness was there, but it, it wasn't the reason I did it, if that makes sense. I totally became sense. good through playing and through enjoying. Yeah. And I did flirt yeah. with the idea of going, man, do I try and, you know, do, do I try and go to a pro tour or whatever? And it was like, probably, I think if I got into Magic two, two to three years sooner, probably, I think I was at the point where pro play was on the decline, the introduction yeah. of arena and stuff. So I think I made the right call and just went, I'm just going to stick to like local events and stuff yeah. and play GPs and stuff like that. Like that's, that's my sort of where I'm at. Like the enjoyment side of it is much more important than the competitive side. Don't get me wrong. I'll play to win. Cause that's the whole point of it. Right. But I'm not like, I need to win every game. I need to be like hyper-focused and read all this stuff. I'm just going to have fun. No, I mean, you hindsight is 2020, but I think you picked the yeah. right path given where competitive play is today. And how Commander is the best or the most popular format 
yeah. in magic. And I think the thing that I like is just that you about you is that you just immersed yourself into magic. So you were just absorbing a lot of things. And that what that's what gives you your range too. Like I, I talked about your range, like in terms of multiple games and trying a lot of things, but also just within magic. Like you're one of the few writers who I think doesn't try to overly specialize on one format or one thing like but you have to have at least that awareness or knowledge in multiple maybe there's somebody out there that's like super deep on one uh yeah. archetype you, you or always but, you, you yeah. always have your format specialists and your archetype specialists they will always be a thing in magic and that's what something i absolutely love that there's a death shadows guy and then there's a the humans guy and then there's a merfolk guy or girl um like I love that because that is obviously, especially in that now in magic, it's very it's, it's a marketable thing, right? It's a very brand yeah. thing. You can yeah. brand yourself as the merfolk person. And if people like merfolk, they can go to them, that sort of thing. I think for me, because magic is so big, I'm not gonna know everything about magic. Like it's impossible. There's just too much. And again, I'm fine with that. But I'll drop in in and out of formats all the time. So right now I'm playing a lot of Pioneer because I'm a huge fan of pioneer i think it's one of the best constructor formats around at the moment so i'm spending a lot of time in pioneer because i think eventually that's going to have the same sort of president as modern currently has and i think modern is going to replace legacy unfortunately i know how much you're big no no legacy, i i fully 100 like agree i'm already i'm already halfway into modern so i i totally agree okay with cool <laughs> so it feels like pioneer is going to be what modern used to be or mm -hmm. what they want modern to be but yeah. modern's too ingrained and it's impossible to change so much so they just created this new format to replace it mm -hmm. um and also pauper because i'm on the pauper format panel so i've been playing pauper on and off for the last like five years so the fact that i'm on this panel that helps curate the format in a healthy way it feels i play i've been encouraged to play a lot more pauper not saying i didn't before but obviously with this i need to keep on top of things a little more than normal right I think there's something also about your character or persuasion. It's just like you have more of an open mind, I feel. That's why you can go mm -hmm. and play Popper and just look at it as if like you're just, I mean, you are getting into it. I mean, I, I know you said you've been doing it for five years, but it's it's good not to be too deep in yeah. a certain format or deck because it allows you to be a little bit more what's the term like just more open-minded i guess right not biased yeah there's no sacred did they say that in britain like there's no sacred cows for for yeah, people that's the thing in britain yeah <laughs> yeah okay 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 um so yeah so let, just just a kind of a, a bit of a, a sideways thing but how did you like that's your magic story but then how did you start creating content because you're that's what you're known for that's your full-time yes. gig now and how did you make that transition because for a lot of people they they really love magic but they don't quite go all the way there right into actually writing or producing content yeah so it was a kind again it was just one of those sort of innocent things that's just become life-changing which happens to a lot of people right like sure. just one tiny act hold so much like impact later on it's yeah. like meeting someone random at a bar and then you, you know the, the love of your life that kind of thing yeah and sliding doors moment me, yeah sure <laughs> yeah yeah this is it and and for me it was just because uh, at this point I think it was like so I've been writing for about three years now so about say like 2018 2019 um I was really into modern I was getting super super into modern uh before like 
coming into magic and I, I played a little bit of standard but I got frustrated with like the rotation system um Kaladesh battle for Zendikar standard kind of left me a bit out of it because that standard wasn't particularly enjoyable for me so I saw this format called modern and I was like oh great this seems really really cool I came into it just after Splinter Twin got banned which I think was quite fortunate because I think if I got into it sooner I would have just not returned because it's just seemed that period of modern wasn't too great and mm-hmm. um, so I, I think I timed that quite well and I just remember playing a lot of modern I was playing a lot of Tron at this point as well um because I do enjoy playing Tron and um, not that it's good at the moment but it's one of the decks that I just go back to once in a while because it's just often fine and playing like FNMs and like modern day tournaments um in a attempt to get better and to articulate my thoughts something I like to do is to write stuff down whether that is published whether that's on a in a diary or on a bit of paper I just appreciate the exercise of taking something out of my brain and just writing it down and having proof that it's there it's just something I can forget about I've put it from one place to another basically and I did this with tournament reports I just whipped up some very sort of loose Nothing like clean, tidy, published, not the stuff that you see in my work now. Mm-hmm. It was very, very rough. And it was just more like cyborg guides, you know, how do I do at FM? What do they do right? What do they do wrong? What sort of cards do I want to try out next week against certain matchups, that kind of thing. Um, and I would just write this down in like a Google Doc or on a notepad. Um, and I was like, what if I put this on a blog, just on like a private blog? You know, it's it's a clear way for me to collate all my information and all my thoughts into one place. I don't have to worry about, you know, finding bits of paper on my desk. You know, you know, it seems organized. Right. And then I was like, what if I make it public? What have I got to lose from making this public? Some random person can just read it and be like, cool, I guess, you know, they they might learn something from it. And so it's just I made a really average you know just really rough looking tumblr blog just to export my thoughts about playing tron in modern and what you know what worked what didn't work that kind of thing and i remember just like posting it on twitter one time just for like for people that play tron here's some thoughts i guess you know take it or leave it sort of thing again circling back to the point of what do i have to lose i may as well just push it right because at worst people ignore it and i can just be like cool like people aren't interested then I can just use it as a as a means for me as as intended and then I went to GP London like I think it was like three four years ago now and I remember playing in a model modern double up of it and I was still like writing stuff on the side at this point just again to articulate my thoughts and one of my opponents was just like you're that Tron girl that wrote all those <laughs> reports on on tumblr right and i was like yeah yeah that's me and they were like yeah this stuff's really good like it really helped me when you know at this fnm and stuff like that and i was like oh wow okay sort of thing and he was just like we're just having this conversation i was just like this is like really bizarre because i barely pushed this like anywhere right and just happened to be this random person found my stuff and had this conversation with me and put two and two together and i was just like I remember coming away from the game just going, maybe there's something to this. If someone's willing to go, hey, this thing really helped me, what else could I do to help people? And that's where it started. And I took it a bit more seriously. Admittedly, 
obviously you didn't get paid to begin with because it was just off my own backs, but it was more of a passion project. Um, and then a couple of places like approached me for like freemium stuff as like a, as a way to get experience. And then it just kind of snowballed from there, to be honest. And here I am. How did you develop your your craft early on? Because, you know, you, you had the Tumblr blog and then you, is it just practice, experience? Or like, how? Do, what was your, if you could go back and look at maybe the first initial couple of pieces and how you evolved I would as a, not want to look writer. at my original pieces yeah well they terrible. also say you should never you should be embarrassed by if you're not embarrassed by something you did five years ago ten years ago you're probably not trying hard enough so I mean that's that's yeah. probably part of it right so that too and I think like part of me is like I don't want to look at it but then there's a part of me that does because then I'm like I can use that as a baseline of growth so yeah. I'm like this is not good I can look at something I've done for TCG Play last week going, this is really good. This is really good. This is, this is like an actual development. And the thing is with writing, you get better just by writing. There's no, there's no secret. There's no, there's no right or wrong. Just it's put the mileage in, right? Yeah, the writing. Yeah, yeah. Writing is one of the few things that you can do a hundred times over and just get better at it. It doesn't, it's, it's a practice thing. Um, and that's what I did. I just kept writing and just kept doing it and, you, you kind of find your style and your grammar and how you structure stuff. And I think when I came to TCG Player first time, because this, this is because I was a freelancer beforehand, I did like the, the modern on a budget stuff, which is what I did for TCG Player for 18 months. When I came into that, I started picking up an eye for detail on content, like how to structure articles. Where would you place like the card image in an article? kind of thing you know like because it's not just writing the words it's formatting the whole thing and that tailors back to my graphic design degree where I have an eye for this stuff and thinking about what people want to see and like the ac accessibility of it so it all kind of like pieced together eventually and then I had like this eureka moment of going hey this content stuff's pretty good I should actually take it seriously and after then it came full-time it also speaks to the awareness angle, right? Which is, I know you yeah. touched on it, but it's just like, you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of the reader or the audience. And yeah. I, it, it wasn't like, it sounds like it wasn't some editor that said you should, Emma, you should probably do it like this. It was more just like you project yourself as the end reader or viewer or whomever. And you're just, it, it like your your graphic design your ux background that that helps right because you you always have to think that way if you're in that different field but you're bringing yes. it here so yes like accessibility is a big thing and i don't think people quite understand that it's like it's all right using this sort of flashy fancy language in writing great but who's going to read your stuff is anyone going to understand it like it depends on the context right like in magic it, you probably don't want that right um in like creative writing great awesome that probably makes more sense because there's a lot more world building involved but when i'm talking about what side side out against eldrazi tron probably you know it, need, it needs to be a lot more click up right absolutely um yeah it's finding language is hard and it took me a long time to start writing in a way that everyone could understand and that is the huge difference from writing from, you know, going from enfranchised magic content to stuff like Polygon and your IGNs. Because not everyone, not everyone knows what mid-range is. So you need to explain that in a way they understand because their audience is super casual, like hyper casual, like kitchen table, 
I play once a year kind of casual. Right. You know? It's not like right. your FNMs and your pro the tools. People that are cool. not on MTG Twitter and MTG subreddit. This is it. Yeah. I remember when I did my first article for Polygon. Um, it was about Strixhaven. Yep. There was uh, it was like the the previous like the previous started coming through for Strixhaven and they wanted me to cover it and it was really exciting because Polygon are a huge place it was a nice validation of my skills. Mm-hmm. Um, mainstream outlets were starting to pick up Magic since Arena came to mobile, so it was nice to be caught in that sort of bubble as well. Um, and I remember doing the sending off the first draft to Charlie, who's the tabletop editor for Polygon, and I was like, and I wrote about Sagemore Witch. <laughs> which is one of my favorite class from Strixhaven. It's the, the Magecraft Maker make a Token. Um, and I talked about like mid-range and stuff like that in the article. And he just left a comment, highlighted it. And he was like, yeah, people are not going to know what mid-range means. You need to reword this in a way. And it's like, okay, got it. I understand Polygon's audience. Like they're not going to know what mid-range is. So I need to find another word to translate this so they understand it. And that can be difficult at times, but... It's funny you bring that up because I think mid-range and tempo are the concepts that magic players all claim to understand too, but they, if you ask them to explain it, it's kind of like the, the old phrasing, like, you know it when you see it, but it's also hard to describe. So it's, uh, I guess as a writer, sometimes you just can't assume they know anything and you just have to break it down and make it simple, which is hard in its own right. I think with tempo, you can ask 50 people what tempo means and you'll get 50 different answers. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like you can't really use that in a in a article right because everyone has a different meaning for the word so you need to find something else that's a lot more broader to understand mm-hmm. like to make sense of it right i've been trying to remove stuff like tempo and mid-range from my sort of vocab just because i've been used to writing for mainstream outlets now so i just know that stuff's not gonna gonna track yeah. so when i write for tcg player it's a lot more easier to read which is good because it means more people read it more people hope they buy cards blah blah Mm -hmm. blah 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 um you don't want people to come across as an idiot when they read your stuff you want them on board you want them to understand it right you want them to get into the game so what's the point using this fancy lucrative language because it just leaves them confused and no one wants to come away confused right like that's not a great feeling which is why i think even for prose or fiction like you should try to write it's preference, obviously, but I, I like writers that write simply. I mean, classic examples being somebody like Dickens or yeah. Austin. It's just like you can read it now and I'm not trying to make any comps to Shakespeare or something like that. But it's just like you can just read it in plain language today and you just don't have to work super hard. But you're getting a really good story or the the, the content. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that, because I think it's really hard actually to make things simple and um, people don't appreciate that enough i guess especially when magic is one of the most complicated games ever as well you've got that to work with like the design of the game is not easy let's be honest there's lots there's lots going on so trying to pass that into a language that a lot of people can understand is quite difficult but i also appreciate the challenge of it because you know me being competitive with my childhood if i see a challenge i will go at it you know best I can and just find it as an opportunity to learn something even if I failed the challenge or it was successful there is something to learn from it for sure and I also want to just talk briefly about or ask you briefly about I think one of the more seminal series of articles that you've done and I guess you could 
say there's a couple, but the one that I really connected with was the sort of like how to get started as a content creator in Magic and how to like basically a toolbox. I felt like it was a really good multi-part series on. So can you maybe for those who are not so familiar with it, I definitely want to link to it as well. But can you tell me a bit about that and maybe how it started and just just that whole process and, and what it is? So this was like my, I think it was like my first month when I was a freelancer at TCG Fire. So I was relatively new. I was still finding my feet as a writer, like finding my form, finding my style, that kind of thing. And I was just looking back on like me writing rough Tumblr blogs about about Tron, you know, to where I was at this point. I was like, wouldn't it be really good if there was like a point of reference or a hub for people to work from if they want to get into writing and when it comes to like content you should always create stuff that you wish you saw as a consumer before you became a creator and the idea of writing like a guide on how to start writing you know how to be a content creator like that would have been really useful for me when I was trying to research stuff. Because a lot of what I did was on my own initiative and just thinking, yeah, what's the worst that can happen, you know, and taking it from there. Like, I can just imagine, like, people finding this really helpful. Um, for context, I'm quite a compassionate person. I like helping people as much as possible. I like motivating people, supporting people, that kind of thing. And I think this was my way of giving something back for people to reference just to help out and if it helps out one person then it's it's done its job right and yeah that's where it kind of started and I didn't intend it to be a series um it was like a one-off just to start off with just just because it was in my head I was like I'm just gonna write this out and just see if TCG Pilot wants it if not I was gonna put it on like a blog or something privately um but Peter the the TCG player the time was like yeah this is great this is like I know it's not it's magic adjacent and it's really weird because obviously they're a card retailer. So them pushing this may seem a bit weird, but they were super on board with it, which was really cool because TCG players platform is massive. And I just wrote this one-off thing. I didn't, as I said, didn't intend it to be a series through on Twitter. And then everyone loved it. Everyone thought it was great. There was a lot of good information, a lot of good tools, you know, how to not get worked up on like small details, just write, figure out what you like, and then just, write about it don't don't complicate it just 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 do it kind of thing and then it just turned into a series and people I still get dms from people today just going hey you know how do I pitch to so-and-so because I really want to get into writing and earn a bit of extra cash that kind of thing so it's kind of nice that I'm seen as like the mother goose of written content a little bit in magic (laughs) at times it's good that's why I really connected with me because I think it really speaks to the mental aspect, especially for someone who's getting started, because that's really most of it. I would say 80, 90% of it is not so much like, how do I format? I mean, I know you had mentioned that, but it's sort of like, that's a refinement. But the first step is like, how do you even jump into the pool? I think that, I think you've given a really realistic perspective to people who are considering jumping into that pool so i i just i just really liked it because it it came from it felt like it came from a a really quite a real place right because it, mm-hmm. it it's it's 
uh, what's the term like it's autobiographical like it felt like that's kind of what you went through as well yeah so. it, it came from a place of experience and just logging a set, kind of like a diary I guess but in a bit more than a, a bit more of a tidy more approachable way it was just like like I didn't have to write this I wasn't told to write this I pitched this to the editor I was like hey this is gonna sound weird this is not really magic but hold out like I think this would be really good um like it, it does still does really well now if anything I need to update it at some point because it's a little outdated and there's more stuff I've learned since then that is relevant but now just like people just open like we're really appreciative of it like especially like the smaller creators that just didn't really have the tools or the encouragement or you know they were just missing something there's like a missing jigsaw piece and this gave that to them so it's great like I'm just happy it's helped people because that was the intention it wasn't for me it's not like I'm doing this as a self-brag hey you know I write for CCG player here's a thing um it was made with heart for other people so I'm glad other people have managed to use that as a resource and you know, I know people who um, looked at that and now have gone on to like write for CFB and Car Kingdom and stuff like that. So it's it's great. It's good to see. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And I don't think it's self-brag at all because it's very honest it's about some of the, I don't want to say dark, but maybe some of the tougher aspects of it as well. Maybe you can talk a bit about can you talk a bit about imposter syndrome and what that means to you? And because I think it's something that a lot of people face, right? Maybe, maybe even those who yeah, have not I mean, I face heard it. of the term or apply to magic content or content. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is something that I quote unquote suffer with experience. I don't know which is the correct way to put it. Um, so imposter syndrome is a mindset where you kind it's, it's a, um, it's like a byproduct of success and what I, be, what I mean by that is that the success is not deserved or your achievements uh, aren't genuine you feel like it's through luck or you feel a bit of a fraud like you just you didn't get there through genuine merit you felt like you know you got lucky or you don't feel like you've been genuine about it um, and this is something I kind of struggle with from time to time um, and I also wrote a piece about imposter syndrome for TCG Player as well, which is another probably one of my best articles I think I've ever written because it one of your favorites, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, one of my favorites for sure because it's again like TCG Player didn't have to say yes to this. They, like now, whether this is a terrible idea, this is not going to sell us cards, but they kind of understood that you know this stuff is really difficult, and it's good to normalize the conversation that it's okay to be you know it's okay to not be okay and with imposter syndrome as I said it comes from a place of success you don't get it if you're not successful in some way it doesn't exist and that is the way to look at it so a weird sort of 4d chess galaxy brain way of it is like I have imposter syndrome but it means I'm good enough to get it in a weird way if that makes sense um, so it's trying to flip that that sort of crisis into a compliment. I know that I'm probably not using the right wording here, but you get what I mean, right? Yes, it's sort of like just turning the positivity into negativity at a super, super high level, I guess. Yeah, this is it. And when you're successful in something, it's easier to be even more successful because you just use that as a stepping stone. You don't start from the bottom again. You just build up on it right and it sometimes it can snowball it snowballed for me 
when I started around for TCG player. And then I got this stuff from, I, w- I worked for a company called Gfinity for a while that I ran their magic site for a while. And then, you know, wrote for Polygon and Dicebreaker and IGN. And then this just all happened at once sort of thing. And it's, it's so easy to, for success to snowball if you're already successful. Um, but like, I still struggle with it. I'm not hundred percent, you know, I'm going to have moments where I just don't think I'm good enough. Like it's better than it used to be a couple of years ago. Cause a couple of years ago, it stopped me from writing like full stop. Like, it's just like, I was like, I'm not good enough for this. Why should I bother kind of thing? Was there something that sparked it or was it just, just you looking at yourself or was it the community or it was like a confluence of things? <sighs> it's just a bit, it's a bit of everything. I think for me, when I felt like that, I was just like, this is not right. This is not who I want to be. So I need to do something about it. Um, I saw I saw a therapist for a little bit about it. And it's weird because imposter syndrome is not considered like an official sort of mental illness sort of condition. It's it's a thing that exists, but it's not clinically like endorsed. Mm-hmm. But, but the fact sense. is, so you felt that... uneasy about yourself in some yeah. ways. So, yeah. So again, that sort of support is really difficult because psychiatrists, it's not an official thing, if that makes sense. It's it's really weird. Um, so I remember seeing someone about it. I remember picking up a really good book about it as well which talks about imposter syndrome Um, and just talking about it normalizing it um one thing I picked up from the book I read was giving the imposter syndrome an identity like humanizing it to the point where it's not scary anymore you're bringing it down to your level and that's what I did it's just like it's not this big scary thing you give it a name give it like an image in your head and it's a lot easier to process and I'm still going to have flashes of it that's that's fine but it's just the the intensity of it and the quantity of it. Like I still get it, but it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. Like it's more manageable, I guess. Like I know it's gonna exist. It's just knowing what to do when it happens. Did you feel that any of that before you did content? Was that has it ever come up for you before? Not really, but then the sort of jobs I had before, like they were good jobs, don't get me wrong. And they weren't like career progressing jobs like not like promotion stuff but I was happy where I was at nine to five doing design whatever um but this is the first like job career that I've had like an an incredible trajectory because it's creative and it's an open field and you know there's a lot of things that could like change you know there's a lot of moving pieces it's not a nine to five I do my five days a week and then go home and you know do nothing on the weekends it's like there's a lot of different things and yeah it's just which is odd because obviously I came into this as a quote-unquote hobby um and like as a hobby and just like just doing it because I enjoyed it and now it's my job and I get paid good money to do it sort of thing it's just like it's a different baseline for success than it would be in like a nine to five. It's not like a promotion, is it? It's just like, hey, I get to write for this, for like say IGN who are massive. And it's like, oh, hey, this thing's happened. And it's just like, ah, and a lot can happen at once. Cause content, there's a lot that can happen. There's a lot that can go on. There's a lot of people that want to talk to you and collaborate with you. So it's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, I think it's put, it's, it's like you're defining maybe in different, careers it's like there's Mm. a box and you're trying to figure out like how do I stay in that box or go outside the box but in something like freelancing or creative work um, or content work it's just there really is no box anymore or you're just completely defining what it is like 
you can go find the second box, which is like with IGN, you can find the third box, you can decide to do a totally different game. So it's like, there's no longer, it's almost like the axes don't even exist because it is, and which, which is your earlier point about how you could get burnout because there's no, there's no boundaries in a way, right? For me, I'm self-employed. Um, so I can take time off whenever I want. Um, I don't get paid for that time off because it's a lot different from being employed to be self-employed. I don't get paid holiday because I just have a freelancer contract with T2G player and these other places, they're all like one-off pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to look after yourself a little bit, which is weird because you kind of lose track of that because you're like, oh, you know, I'm at home, I'm at my computer. I guess I can do work for a few hours, you know, why not sort of thing. And not really think about it, but you're working and you're using that re- that mental resource and that energy, right? And then you're like, gee, why am I burnt out? <laughs> I wonder yeah. why sort of thing. So I've been, and, and another reason is I've been reading that back as well. And I've been feeling a lot better since because, you know, I've just got this TCG player thing. Um, fortunately, all the other editors for like Polygon and Dicebreaker, they've been really cool, really supportive. They get the industry is really tough. There's a lot going on. Uh, there's a high expectation to turn over work really quickly. And if you don't decide to do the work, they'll get someone else in instead. So you get this little bit of FOMO, even though it isn't, but it kind of feels that way. And it's just knowing when to slam the brakes. And it's really hard when you work for yourself because there's no one there to tell you to slam the brakes, if that makes sense. So you have to be extra like self-aware. Absolutely. And so this is actually one of the community questions, right? I think it's a good time to ask it. So are you... You're, are, you, are you better these days, like from when you first tweeted about, you know, you know what you were going through? Like, it, have you found the right balance? I feel better because in my head, um, so I'm a massive overthinker as well. I think about a lot of things, a lot of things that perhaps doesn't matter, but it just helps me process it easier. Um, it's probably one of the good one of the reasons I'm good at magic. So I look at I think of all the lines, I think of all the outcomes, that kind of thing. And I'm feeling a lot better because I can just shut off the the extra freelance stuff. I can just pop it in the back of my head. It doesn't matter. And with that, it just frees up more bandwidth to do the stuff I want to do. So, you know, play more magic. I don't because because magic is like a full time thing. It's now my job and not a hobby. So finding that enjoyment to play magic has been difficult because obviously the lines are, are blurred. So I've been playing a little bit more magic, which is nice. And I've been paying some Warhammer in my spare time, which I find quite relaxing and just catching up on sleep and, you know, all these kind of things. And it's just nice to like relax. And it's good to, and it's just good to not do work sometimes. Like, even though I'm still doing stuff as TCG player, like I feel like I've got a lot more freedom, a lot more bandwidth. And that's important considering I think my bandwidth has been more narrow recently with the pandemic and lockdowns and stuff like that that's been eating away it's been eating away for all of us mm-hmm. and I just don't think I took that as seriously because I was working from home anyway during all of this so I didn't really it I didn't really I didn't need to go outside and see people and whatever and maybe that compounded my mood because I couldn't go out and see friends or whatever so how do you balance that? It sounds like you're you're doing much better in terms of balancing, but in general, how, you know, it's like what they say, like if you work at McDonald's, you don't ever want to have a Big Mac again. So yeah. <laughs> if you're so close to the strategic side of, or just all sides of magic as a content creator, can you still enjoy the game or do you have to oh, yeah. challenge um, yourself? I don't force it. If I, if I feel like playing magic, I will go out and play magic. 
Um, but I'm not like I need to play magic because it's my job. Like I can I can still do my job without playing a game of magic. But sure. that's not that's not it for me. Um, so I have a cube. I really enjoy playing cube. I really enjoy playing Pauper and Pioneer and stuff. But I just let the mood dictate what I want to do. Because if I'm forcing myself to play magic, then it feels like work because I'm already forcing myself to do magic content because it's my job. And you see what I mean? So I just kind of go, you know what? I could go for a cube draft tonight, you know, fire up the cube on Modo, whatever, have to play. Or, you know, there's pauper, like, well, just as a pauper night every Thursday, I'll go and play pauper, you know, see some people, you know. I have like a dozen decks, so I just bring them all down so everyone can just like play pauper or whatever. So it's just, I tend to go by mood because I think it's really important just to not make it seem forced because there is an aspect that's already forced and I just want to cultivate that and preserve it as best as possible. It sounds like you're doing it for the right reasons and which is yeah. primarily enjoyment and you're not like thinking about everything as like quote unquote research for some yeah I don't I don't want to go to like um like pay pauper for example and think pauper format panel stuff and like oh gee like this card's a problem whatever I just want to play magic it's just like in the loosest sense I just want to have some fun like my work hat is hot off I tend to analogize things in like in a hat form so if my content's hat off then I'm just going to here to have fun. Like yeah. I need to relax one way or another. And it's like GPs, like I imagine if like Grand Prix, Magic Fest, et cetera, ever came back, that would be the same. I would just practice for like a, a two day event and then just have fun. Like mm. I wouldn't see it as work. I wouldn't write about it afterwards. Like I did way back when I would just see it as a vessel of enjoyment. Good. So that takes me because you mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, maybe listeners will be disappointed because I haven't asked you the question yet, but I need to ask you. <laughs> the popper, your involvement in popper and the the panel. Yeah. Tell me how you got into it and uh, what it's been like so far. Just just give us the um, I can't say inside baseball. That's like too much of an American thing. <laughs> but give us the one hundred and one on what it's like to be an insider. Yeah. Um, so it came about when Gavin Verhey just DM'd me on Twitter, just going, hey, do you have like half an hour to spare just to talk about something? He was like, don't worry, it's not bad. I just Half an hour say, to like, talk about you... something you'll be involved with for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was like, he, he, Gavin just worded it. It's like, there's a really cool opportunity that I'd love, love for you to be involved in. Uh, take half an hour of your time, no problem. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's like, it doesn't, he's like, don't worry, it's not bad. You haven't done anything wrong. And I'm like, thank God. Um, and I'd be worried if you were messaging me of all people. Um, so we had like a chat on Discord because we, because I know Gavin fairly well anyway. We're relatively good friends. We talk a lot on like Facebook and stuff. Um, and he was just like, I'm looking to start a panel for Pauper because it's clear the format needs a lot of attention. And what's he, whether what's he want to give the bandwidth or don't want to, that doesn't matter. What, what was important that Pauper needed some attention and they couldn't supply the bandwidth for whatever reason. So Gavin and I believe Adam, Aaron Forsyth had like this idea to create a pauper format panel in a similar vein to the commander advisory group and the rules committee, because that seems quite popular, even though it's like not a quote unquote endorsed WOTC format, if you know what I mean, it's like a community driven thing. Pauper came, pauper came about as a community driven thing too, but WOTC have endorsed it as an official format. Endorsed. Yeah, so the commander, but it doesn't mean that being grassroots doesn't 
it, it's still huge. It. So still growing. This is it. Um, and there's been a lot of issues with Pawpaw of like design of cards and how long it's taken for Watsy to like remove these cards from the format. There's been like a lack of care and Pawpaw is a very, very um, committed format. There's a lot of committed players because um, it's so cheap and so accessible. There's so many people that play it. Um, and they really, really care about the format. And they were getting really frustrated that their favorite format was kind of falling on the wayside. Mm-hmm. So Gavin and Aaron Forsyth were like, we need to sort this. Like, we don't want to see this format, like, kind of just die. And Gavin has a particular affinity towards Pauper as well, because he plays a lot of it. So he was really determined to get something sorted. Um, so we had this call. He was like, I want to sort out, like, a, a committee, a council, a panel of format experts, people with good insight, people who have experiences, and we can look at curating the format, like looking at cards to ban, unban, just look at like data, just to see how the format's doing. And Gavin really wanted me to be a part of it. And I was just like, yeah, this sounds great. Like I'm in sort of thing. Cause I love having these discussions about meta games and uh, ecosystems of formats. I see it as a bit like an ecosystem, like you've got this food chain thing going on. That's how I see it. And yeah, and it was like me and six others. And we have these conversations almost daily about Pauper and we get access to all kinds of data so we can make these sort of decisions. Obviously, we're not going to make these decisions just because we can. We're very, very careful with it. Um, And I think the one thing I love about the Pauper format panel is that it's global. There's we have a representative in Japan. You've got one in Mm -hmm. Brazil. You've got one in Italy. You've got UK. You've got two in America. And then you've got Gavin. Um, And it's just good to have that sort of cultural combine, like we have different aspects and different experiences and different outlooks on the format. And that's great because that allows us to make the best decision overall. It's not all in one country because one thing that people don't really realize with Magic is that, especially like formats, a lot of different archetypes are more representative in different geographical areas, which I found quite interesting. Um, For example, uh, I'm going to talk about legacy for a second. So, one of my friends went to Japan uh, on holiday and they play uh, Legacy Lands. Um, so when they went to play at a Haruya store in Japan, no one plays Lands because it's a very Western archetype. A lot of people in Japan play like Delver and stuff. And that idea was really interesting to me just because, you know, there's these trends in like certain parts of the world. And it also happens in Pauper, so... Um, but yeah, like we all get together. We all really care about the format. No one's like, there's no bias involved. We're just thinking the best interests. And it's like, honestly, the discussions are great. It's just really good just to have this open floor, like nothing's off the table. Um, and we all come to agreement. There's no arguing, no fighting or anything like that. Right. Um, and yeah, it's great. And I think a lot of people are quite happy of its existence and what we're doing currently, which is really good to see. It's encouraged more people to play Pauper, which is the end goal. So we want people to keep playing the format. It means it's, a very, a good job. it's a very strong signal because there's the parallels to the the keg and the some of the things that are happening in Commander. People actively know it's a signal that okay, Wizards cares a lot about this format. They're getting people to, um, it's nice. I know you said it was sort of like brought about because of certain resource constraints, but sometimes sometimes constraints are are good because like it, it brings a sort of like a third party into things. And it's just, it's just overall, like there's more excitement in yeah. the format. And I played, I played Popper, actually paper Popper a few years back. And I'm excited to try to get, 
back into it. I have a friend who is a commander diehard and I think he's now getting into popper because people are telling him like we should play popper and he's I think he's 100% paper not digital at all. So it's just a really exciting time I feel. Yeah, and it's just extremely affordable like magic online paper like that's what makes pauper really important like making sure this is a really good format to people play because there's no money barriers. People aren't gatekeeped by money, so people enjoying the format is even more important than stuff like, you know, other formats. And yeah, it's just really good just to be like, cool, you know, if there is a problem, we can look at it. We tend to share out some opinions and then we get the data and then we like, the data suggests that what we were thinking already is correct, which is which is good. It's good to have that intuition. Um, another thing that people don't really understand with pauper is that there are so many commons that get printed in like set releases, commander product, like unsets, some of those can be legal. They've got like your horizon sets, you've got downshifts and like master sets. There's a lot of stuff that could hit pauper and catching everything, it must be difficult from Watsy's perspective. They can't keep an eye on every single common, like just on the sheer quantity that come up with every set, right? And you know, like Bonders Ornament's a really good example. That's like a commander 20 card that did, did some nasty work in pauper. So we had to ban that. And it's just a lot of this stuff is incidental because they don't have the bandwidth to check every single common for, let's be honest, a format that doesn't make them a lot of money. So it makes sense to put that in in the hands of the community instead, right? So they can focus on their arenas and whatnot. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the the beautiful things about Magic now is that because it's a rule set and mechanics, and you're really getting like six different games in one, depending on how many formats you're counting, it's it, it can be fixed, like it can be adjusted. And it's just people have these, um, which is also great that you're not, you weren't in magic like 20 years ago, because it, there's these preconceived notions that I don't think are always necessarily healthy for the game or the game's evolution. And we need just people who are like more forward thinking, forward looking yeah. to, to think about things, right? This is it. And I know there's going to be people that are going to be against the idea and that's fine. We're not, we can't please everyone. And if honest, if I'm honest, I'd be worried if we could please everyone because that means we're doing something wrong. I think you need to have a little bit of, a little bit of duality. Um, but we just have the best intentions. We really care about Paul, but we all play it. We all really enjoy it. We all have different backgrounds. Like we have a couple of like the couple of people on the panel are just like trophy leaders and one like various pauper like challenges. And I think one of them won the, like, won the first, like one of the only pauper PTKs as well. Um, this range from competitive to casual, like there's a really good group of people that have just researched and followed the format for years. Um, and we, we have the best intentions. We're not doing this to ban your favorite deck or doing it out of spite due to bias or whatever. We just want to cultivate a healthy community that just wants to play this really cool commons format that is absurdly cheap. So that's the angle. Excellent. So Emma, do you mind if we go to like a rapid fire round? Like I just have a whole bunch yeah, of questions sure. and maybe just they're not related, but let's, okay, let's, sure. uh, let's try to do let's it. <laughs> so one of the questions I think was asked by someone from the community, which I think is really good is what are some things you've seen get better in magic in the last few years? And where is there room for improvement? So this is a really hard one. Um, so the accessibility of magic is getting better because of arena. 
Um, I, I admit I'm not the biggest arena player. I prefer playing Modo and Paper because that's when I was introduced into Magic and you can't take that away from me. And you can't play Modern um, in, on Arena, so there you go. Yeah. This is it. Or Popper. Or Pioneer. <laughs> so. And Pioneer. You know, um, but the fact that arena exists allows more people to get into magic, whether that's casual, whether that's competitive, that's that's great because we both know magic is like the best game in the world, right? So getting as many people into that is great. And just seeing Wizards of the Coast put some resources into getting people into magic on their phones, on like for arena is really, really good because then more people get into it. People might want to do competitive, people might want to get into content, like it opens a lot of opportunities and in you know there's a lot of enjoyment there um in that sense it's great i think the improvement is obviously the competitive side because even though i'm not a, like organized play is what i'm on about here um don't like even though i didn't choose to go down the, the competitive pro route i really enjoy watching competitive magic like i admire there's a lot of pro players that i just admire and love watching like if I'm working, sometimes I'll throw an old Pro Tour and old SCG coverage just to get that fix right because we haven't had it for a few years. And it's just it's just that respect. And I miss stuff like the World Magic Cup was a really good one. I, I really enjoyed that event. Um, and it just would be really good just to see some attention to like the tabletop side of things. I know it's difficult with like uh, the pandemic and, you know, what's going to happen to tabletop magic. But I just love just to see some clarity some just like hey we're working on something just a little bit of communication because it's been really really quiet because it's just all on arena um i think that would do a lot to restore faith in like the more franchise players because obviously scg doesn't really do anything anymore they have the cons there's no coverage on that side of things i just think people just want that itch they want to scratch that itch they just want to watch some competitive magic that isn't on arena It'd just be cool just to get that little bit of communication just to be like, don't worry, we're trying to do something kind of thing. So they're just being quiet. Okay, that's that's excellent. So the next <laughs> question is, how did you get into running? Because I know that you're an avid runner and uh, you, you've, you've been public with some of that. So how, how did yes. you get into the whole running aspect of your life? Um, so when I remember... <sighs> so it started like three four years ago um and I was looking to lose weight so one thing I don't re I haven't really spoke about often on like social media and stuff is that at this point I was pretty overweight and I just remember waking up one morning just having the, like, this eureka light bulb moment just going I'm not really happy with how I am you know I'm tired of feeling tired I'm tired of being sick a lot because I'm not looking after myself and it was just me getting into running was like the end product of that. Um, and I remember losing like about 50 pounds across like 10 or so months, just from like eating better, just going on walks, stuff like that. Just trying to you know feel better about myself. And then I was like, I'm probably fit enough to go for a jog, right? And then when you start jogging, you're like, wait, I can actually jog like two, three K. Wait, I can jog six, seven K. And then you just, it just kind of snowballs because it just gets easier, right? You should know, because you obviously do a lot of running yourself. And I see running now, I, admittedly, I don't run as much as I used to because I've been picking up badminton instead. I really enjoy racket sports. Mm -hmm. uh, I play badminton like three times a week. So that's my good source of cardio. But I do enjoy running like once or twice a week as my one-on-one -on -one Emma time. So that's like my time just to like reflect, 
think about my day you know how how are things you know is there anything I need to do you know am I happy that sort of thing it's just a sort of open forum for my brain just to process stuff and while I'm jogging to you know background music or whatever so um I would still love to do like a half marathon at some point um but I came into running seriously when the covid happened and uh, there's a really good half marathon that's Nipswich which is the town I live in um, and it's been cancelled the last two years and I, I went for it twice and it's been cancelled due to COVID measures and stuff like that. So hopefully this autumn I can actually run in it because things are getting a little bit better. So fingers crossed. But no, I just enjoy it as a as an exercise just to just, just sightsee and just clear my mind. I imagine you're similar when you go running as well. I would say so. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I do think that the majority of the world doesn't love running. So it's, it's always nice to talk to someone who also does, because I think we're in the minority. So, yeah. yeah. The thing is with running, people think you have to be really good already. And it's like, you'd be surprised how quick it is that you can not be terrible at running. Like you just got to do it like two, two, two to three weeks and you will notice the difference. It's aerobic fitness is really kind to you when if you're really regular with it if you stop for like two months it's really unforgiving because you lose that fitness really yes. quickly but if you can keep a good momentum you'd be surprised how far you can go because that's what happened with me I was like wow I could just run like 3k without you know my lungs collapsing you know and it's just surprising how far you can go absolutely the progression is the really magnetic part of it and I really believe that unless you have some sort of chronic issue that prevents mm. you from running or walking, almost anyone can do it if you just want to do it. And I think that's, it's, you don't have yeah. to be terribly they, athletic to, to be a runner, I think, because I'm not athletic at all. This is it. Like I, I'm not built for running. I'm five foot three. You know, I'm not, I don't have the long gangly sort of attributes that make good runners good runners but I, I still enjoy it either way whether I'm genetically suited for it and otherwise it doesn't mean I can't enjoy it I'm I have zero plans to be an athlete because that's because I'm 33 33 years old and enjoy a beer every other week like you know like I'm, I'm fine with that I just enjoy the I, I, I just enjoy them that the exercise of just going out for a run it's like a lovely spring day I can see some sights I can just think about wherever my mind wants to go and it's, it's good mental health as well Speaking of having a beer, so the next question is about that. <laughs> you can choose one beer, one cheese, and one whiskey for the for the rest of your life. Which one is this it? Is hard. This is hard because I like a lot of those things in different ways. Uh, so for the cheese, it's probably going to be camembert, which is a French dipping cheese. Um, you bake it in the oven, and then you get like say bread, and then you dip it, and it's really really good. Um, for beer, this is really hard. It's probably going to be like Delirium Tremens, which is like a Belgian beer. Uh, it's a Belgian golden ale. Um, it's got a little pink elephant on the front as well, which is, you know, it's a good night when there's a pink elephant on the bottle, as I say. And for whiskey, we're probably going to go with Monkey Shoulder, which is like an Irish Scotch whiskey. Um, it's slightly smoky, but it's really, really good. Um, but begrudgingly, they're my free options because I, I enjoy so much of that kind of stuff anyway. It's hard to just be like, like tomorrow I can give you a different answer because it's all on mood, right? So if it's if it's those three, then and you can only choose one of the three, which one would you choose? Oh, definitely the beer, I think. <laughs> it's more versatile. Maybe. I enjoy beer way too much, which is why I'm never gonna be like hyper fit. Like, and I'm fine with that. Like, you gotta have some comforts in life, right? Yeah. Of course. What's what's living without a little bit of comfort? 
it's it's for me too it's just i i enjoy food so i can't just force myself to eat just to stay alive it's just it's just not i bake happen. as i bake as well so i bake cake like i i i, I made my bed and lie laying in it with beer and cake so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes literally maybe yeah uh, so about the baking that's this is actually something i want to ask you too which is you know how how did you get into that because i i know you said that you're you're quite into it and you even recently applied to be on the great british yeah. bake-off so like what what's this what's the story behind you in in baking so um going back to my parents uh, my family so my mom um was a tremendously good baker so she obviously she didn't work when she was raising me and my brothers so i spent a lot of time with my mum, and in her spare time she would like to bake just because she was very good at it and she enjoyed baking for other people so when I was like seven or eight I just remember just like helping out and it just kind of spiraled from there um, and re- I think I realized the motivation behind starting baking was because when I was a little bit younger when my mum would bake there would be the leftover cake like the leftover bowl of like cake mix or brownie mix or whatever and me and my brothers would always fight for it and sometimes I would win sometimes I would lose so I was like if I helped my mum baking like as an assistant on the side that means I get the the cake mix before anyone else right so I think that played into it a little bit as well um but no I've been baking on and off for like what 25 years now um and I really enjoy it it's it's very meticulous it's very detailed I love I'm a details person so it lines up well with that Mm -hmm. and I very much enjoy baking and cooking for people like I think the biggest compliment you can get is if you make something and they really enjoy it and it really makes them happy um and I like I just enjoy baking for people and unfortunately I didn't get into the bake-off auditions this year but I'm going to try next year because I got an email the other day unfortunately that I didn't get through um but it's just something I always associate with my time my mother so um, my mother passed away when I was 17 so a lot of those sort of memories hold quite true to me so I, I still bake now because one I enjoy it and two she taught me quite a lot and sometimes when I bake she's in the back of my head telling me to do stuff so for example if I'm making shortbread I've got my mum in the back of, back of my head going you know cold hands make really good shortbread you can't make good shortbread with warm hands because if it's if you've got cold hands it means the uh, the dough can prove easier and then it just raises quicker so I've got stuff like that in the back of my head every time I cook or bake like it's yeah. just like little good memories or well. just things yeah, you guidance. still remember yeah, yeah. that's great. There's one that I want to ask you, which is not on the list, which I'm going to go ahead and ask you. It's kind of a <laughs> kind of a big question, but what is it like to be this question is always flawed. So let me let me think about how I can phrase this. Sure? You probably have gotten this question before in some shape or form. So what is it like to be a member of the fairer sex when it comes to being out there in magic and or doing writing magic content? I've never really thought of my gender in the equation, to be honest. I know other people will. And because you've always been yourself, I've, right? It's it's not like this is yeah. it. Like I don't I don't segregate genders and whatever. I just say, cool, you're a person. We like this thing. Like that's what it should be. You shouldn't break it down into like because it doesn't matter. Why why it doesn't matter that you know you're a man, I'm a woman. We can still have this conversation. Absolutely fine. The background of it doesn't really matter, right? Um, and I've never seen it that way, although I get why p- 
people looking at me would because you know I'm a woman I'm in a male-dominated industry let's be honest is even though there's more women coming into magic and into content it's still disproportionate right there are more men than women and perhaps I've worked a little harder for it and I've just not realized I've not really thought about it that way I've just seen it as cool I really enjoy writing about this card game called Magic the Gathering I'm just going to take it as far as I can um, perhaps that's just because I'm driven. I don't really account for the fact that I'm a woman. I just kind of just do it. And the way I see it is if I'm good enough for the job, I should have it anyway, regardless of my gender. Like it's, it's, a, it's a quality of skill rather than a quality of background. Whether I would be as successful if I was a man, no clue. I could not, could not answer that question. Like There's no frame of comparison anyway. That's, yeah. No, so. this is it. It's just like, maybe maybe like it would be different. Maybe it'd be a lot worse. I don't know. I don't see myself as a, as a like um, like a minority. I'm I'm a person that likes magic. I'm a person that enjoys this stuff. And just that's how I'm going to carry it because that's what's important. The fact that I'm a woman is irrelevant in this conversation. It's what you enjoy and stuff like that. And I think people get hooked up on the details and the the nuances and stuff, which is something I've had in the past being a. I mean, a woman that's really, really into like Ninja Turtles, Transformers, video games in a time where that wasn't really common or seen as weird because that was more of a, ma- a masculine male thing rather than a woman thing. So mm-hmm. I'm used to it, I guess, but I don't really see it that way anymore. I'm a lot more open minded about it. Yeah, that's good. Emma, it's been a pleasure talking to you, getting to know sort of your your background a lot better than just reading your articles and uh, what's the best place for people to find you on on social or wherever you want to be found uh the best place to get hold of me is on twitter so that is mzine so that's e triple m z y n e um i will respond to dms in most cases as long as they're appropriate and not terrible or derogatory like if you oh my gosh so you have (laughs) okay all right I've had a couple but not as bad as yeah yeah, like I'm not going to respond to every DM let's put it that way it will Mm -hmm. uh it depends but if it's like pauper if it's about getting into writing if you want to talk about beer or simpsons throw me a message that's the best way to get hold of me um I don't share my Facebook so that's quite private this is I've got to keep a lot of family on there so that's this aside and yeah the best place to get hold of me is on Twitter excellent so thank you so much for taking the time in your in your afternoon and i wish you continued success and i hope that uh, we'll see you do more excellent content not just magic but all kinds of different games and i look forward to seeing your strava on instagram (laughs) (laughs) all right have a (laughs) have a wonderful rest of the day you too take care Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Magic. Please give us a follow on Twitter at Humans of Magic and visit our website, humansofmagic.com. We'll see you next time.